Hello and welcome to Please Expand. I'm Ahilius and welcome to the first episode of Season 2. Things are going to be slightly different this season. Uh, I'm still going to be interviewing the authors. I've got Rosemary Hill on her book Time's Witness. But instead of me just droning on in the introductions and the post-interview discussions, I thought that I would try to make things more interesting by having my philosophy colleague, friend, Julia, uh, participate and sort of add a different opinion, a different voice to the discussion. So, uh, Julia, welcome. Thank you very much for including me. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the the huge fan base of Please Expand? <laughs> I did my uh, PhD in philosophy with uh, Hila at Warwick, and I'm currently a philosophy postdoc in Helsinki in Finland. And what's your research on? I work broadly between epistemology and ethics, and my thing is responsibility for beliefs. Fascinating. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, and today we're going to be talking about my interview and Rosemary Hill's book, Time's Witness. Okay, why don't you start by telling us something um, about Rosemary? So, Rosemary is a writer, historian, and independent scholar with an interest in biography, material culture, and the connection between them. I think all of these things really come out in our interview. She's written two prize-winning books, and uh, she's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and the Society of Antiquaries, and she's a trustee of the Pugin Society and a quantum fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. So, you know, she's, uh, she's been around. <laughs> and you've interviewed her on her book Time's Witness, um, History in the Age of Romanticism. So, before we delve into it, um, what is the book about? So, very, very broadly, the book traces a shift in the way that history was done. Gradually, the study of history was not just about great individuals, but also about ordinary people. So it takes its starting point as the fall of the Bastille in Paris in 1789, and concludes with the Great Exhibition in London in 1851. Okay, so I suppose we're going to um, learn some more about the distinction between antiquarianism and history. Yes, that's definitely a central theme of the book. I mean, the book really just shows the rise and fall of antiquarianism. In 1789, certain things happen such that antiquaries suddenly, and their research become more important to the general field of history. And the fall of antiquarianism? <laughs> well, yeah. So, and after 1851 and further down the line, the sort of the gains that the antiquarians had made, uh, they remain, they forever influence how we conceive of history and the other disciplines that are associated with history. But no one calls themselves an antiquary anymore. Okay. Uh, something is left behind. I wonder if Rosemary will agree with this. Well, yeah, <laughs> she is still, yeah, she's an antiquary. <laughs> um, okay, and just a concluding question. If, you, if, you, if I asked you what, what you bring home from the book, like yeah. what is the, the main thesis that uh, you think will remain with you, what would that be? So I think... Uh, the underlying theme of the book is this idea that our present understanding of the past is heavily influenced by our needs, our present needs, of what kind of a past we need. And what Rosemary's book shows is that perhaps the greatest legacy of the antiquarians in this period is the image of Britain that they create, mm -hmm. which is still very much the image of Britain that we have nowadays. Okay. So basically it's a matter of selecting and it is a more active idea of history and historiography, perhaps. Yeah, we might say it's a more creative kind of notion okay. of history. Uh, we talk a lot about myth-making. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, that sounds fascinating. So, yes. let's see what you've done. Yeah, so <laughs> without further ado, I give you Rosemary Hill. expand. I'm Mahilius Rockney and today I have with me Dr. Rosemary Hill on the podcast to discuss her most recent book, Time's Witness. Rosemary, thank you for coming on the podcast. Not at all, thanks for asking me. So your book has a very uh, curious and distinctive subject matter, uh, antiquarians and antiquarianism. And that isn't something that is very present in our minds nowadays. When I think of an antiquarian, I might think of someone who owns an antique shop, not necessarily a historian as you sort of uh, describe them. 
So could you please tell us a bit about what, what is an antiquarian and what is this, this vocation of theirs? Well, antiquaries have been around for a very long time. They're still around. There is, uh, based in London, um, a Society of Antiquaries. And indeed, I am a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries. And one answer to your question is, you're looking at one. <laughs> um, but you're quite right, of course, that the word now sounds odd to people. And indeed, my publishers, I wanted to call, have the subtitle of my book be The Antiquary in the Age of Romanticism. And they said, no, if you do that, it'll end up in the antiques section of the bookshop. If you want it to be known that it's history, you have to put history in the subtitle. The real defining difference between antiquaries and historians, and there's a big overlap, but the idea is that antiquaries study the past through its material remains. So they will look at manuscripts, of course, but they will also look at any kind of artefact. And in fact, if once you start to think about it, you realise there's a lot of this kind of thing going on. All archaeology, um, if you go to um, if you go to the British Museum or most museums now, you will see collections of historic costume, weapons, pottery, jewellery, all of these things. But before the end of the 18th century, it was very unusual to study history through anything other than written records. The assumption being that written records were more reliable, um, but we know that this is not the case. Right, and you mentioned that before antiquarianism sort of took off, the the basic approach to history was uh, a pedagogical one, that people would study history so as to instruct future generations on how to act in certain situations. It's sort of uh, a history of great people and great events, not a history of, not, not a local history. Uh, is that a fair way to characterise the distinction between antiquarianism and 18th, 17th century history? Certainly 18, in the 18th century. The, I mean, it's all a question, and that's really a question at the heart of my book, is what do you want history for? What do you want it to be? And people change their mind about that from time to time and place to place. And in the 18th century, what really people wanted history for was, as you say, to inspire them to be a resource, to see the most um, dramatic and noble things that had been done. There was not much interest in actually checking out the detailed facts. It must be, I mean, David Hume wrote the most important 18th century history of England. I mean, he really wasn't interested in detailed facts. He was interested in this great sweep of history. And also, it was written with the idea that human experience is a narrative of progress. So you're looking at how we got to be here, how wonderful us became so wonderful, and in the future, we will progress further and further. And so you obviously wouldn't be interested. And the sort of people who wrote it, who were nearly all men and mostly upper class, they weren't interested in old bits of pottery or things that may have been built like Stonehenge by people who didn't read and write. So they just couldn't see the point of it. It was, of, And it was of no use for their kind of history. And then there's this gradual shift in the way people think about things. I mean, you you mentioned that it's... So you've got the, the dissolution of the monasteries in 1533, roughly. <laughs> and you start having this great feeling of resentment that by some people, mostly Catholics, I understand, who feel as if they've lost something significant of their identity, of, of their history. And this, and this is gradually building on all the way up until... 1789, which is when your book sort of wants to begin. Um, so I guess what I want to ask is, is this, to what extent is this, is the birth of antiquarianism a response to uh, the dissolution of the monasteries? To what extent is it a response to someone trying to take away someone's history? Or is that just an event and can we find evidence of this kind of concern with history before this time? Well, I think I love, by the way, the idea of a book wanting to begin. That's a feeling I'm very familiar with. Um, and sometimes it's like Tristram Shandy. You think you'll never get to the beginning. But um, to answer your question, there are moments of great trauma in society. And I think the thing about the Reformation was that it was 
a huge traumatic event in English and later on, in, a bit later on in Scottish history. And we forget that. And it was, of course, Catholics were um, disenfranchised and um, indeed in danger of their lives. But it was not just Catholics. Everybody, if you think, I mean, the whole social structure of medieval England, which had gone on pretty much the same, was fractured at the Reformation. So it didn't matter what your religious beliefs or no religious beliefs were, your landscape, your social world was completely reorganised. And so for the first time in a very long time, people began to think, oh, my children will grow up in a world that's different from mine. So instead of this just being a, um, a continuity, you have this sense of fracture. And once you have a sense of fracture, people begin to scrabble about and try and pick up the remains. So in the aftermath of the Reformation, you get the first great golden age of antiquarianism and the writing of history, the recovery of fragments, which went on all the way through up to and indeed through the civil wars, where, of course, there was a lot more destruction. And that sense of shock and trauma lasted a long time, but it faded in the 18th century. And people, it was a much more secular society. People went on the grand tour. They were much more interested in classical civilization, the art of Greece and Rome, the philosophy of Greece and Rome. That was what you were aiming for. And why did things begin to change again later in the 18th century? Well, um, the answers in England and France are different, but partly it's just, I think, that you know, things change, time passes. And more people who were not educated, perhaps, but began to be, Dr. Johnson says this, you know, that, that reading history when it's all about generals and kings, it doesn't really have much to say to the ordinary person, does it? And the ordinary person was beginning to get rather restless about this. <laughs> Great, yeah. So, yeah, uh, so as you, as we briefly mentioned, your book does sort of begin in 1789 after a really good introduction to the sort of history of antiquarianism. And it's very pleasant in history when a historian gives us uh, two dates where something sort of begins and something sort of ends. And of course, you complicate the matter by saying that, of course, it doesn't just begin in 89, it's leading up to it, and it doesn't just end in 51, it sort of fades away. Uh, but, you know, in 1789, you've got the storming of the Bastille and the French Revolution, and that's uh, what historians would call a turning point. In history, that's a very significant event for lots of reasons, but specifically for your book, because, again, it, it seems to function in the same way as the Reformation does. It creates this trauma. It gives, it, it causes people a lot of concern that they're going to lose a lot of things. Uh, things that they previously didn't really consider as things that they might lose. It's only once uh, they start losing them, or they, they hear reports of losing them, that they become very concerned. So just on this topic of the French Revolution, something that I found interesting in your explanation for perhaps why people's minds might have changed is that partially because sentiments in England towards the French Revolution were mixed, ranging from hostile to praiseworthy, and then you have the Revolutionary Wars, you suggest that this sort of conflict with France creates an environment which allows the criticism of certain Enlightenment values that seem to be the theoretical framework for keeping antiquarianism at a distance and preferring uh, classical history. Is this, is this correct? Yes, I mean, I think that, as you say, it's all very... One of the reasons that I just said we're going to start in 1789 and end in 1851 is because if you don't, there is no end to it, as we know. <laughs> you know history doesn't divide neatly, but there are things you can do. And of course, from my point of view, what's very convenient about 1789, and the summer of 1789 particularly, is that in England, in Wiltshire, in Salisbury Cathedral... Uh, we have a huge row going on about conservation. And that you might nowadays think, well, so what, really? But the point about the row at Salisbury Cathedral was that the, the bishop, backed by the king, was using a top architect to improve the cathedral. 
And this was very, this was the embodiment of that Enlightenment idea of improvement. You've got a medieval cathedral. Well, obviously, it was decorated by people who hadn't yet discovered perspective. They didn't know about symmetry. So you paint over all the wiggly old um, medieval paintings, take out some of the medieval stained glass, you lighten it up, move all the um, crumbly old tombs, including that of St. Osmond, the founder, and just open the whole place up and and whitewash it. Um, and this was considered to be a jolly good idea by almost everyone except a man called Richard Goff, who was the director of the Society of Antiquaries, who sent a draftsman down to find out what was going on. And he published an open letter in the Gentleman's Magazine, protesting at what was going on. And this was really the first preservationist campaign. It was the first time anyone, even the antiquaries, because antiquaries who had recorded things, as I say, all through the Reformation and the Civil War, they'd recorded things that were lost and they regretted their loss, but it never occurred to them that they could actively intervene and say, you're not to do this. That this material is, whether you like it or not, is not the question. The question is, has it got intrinsic historic value? And if it has, then you are not to smash it up or paint it over. So there's this little kind of... um, uprising in the world of history going on in England at the same time as the very big uprising in France. And of course, what happened in France, as far as material culture was concerned, was that everything, all the property of the crown and the church and the aristocracy, was all nationalised overnight. And that teaches you another lesson, that public ownership, which for example, in the case of Stonehenge, was campaigned for for years and years and years, but it's not it's not the answer in itself, because when everything belongs to everyone, in practice, nothing really belongs to anyone. And it's often then that the real fighting starts. Great, yeah. You mentioned the, uh, the issue surrounding Salisbury Cathedral, which prompted some very interesting thoughts, because... So the background is that these antiquarians are starting to look at the medieval past and they're starting to find uh, a national identity there. There's a lot of emphasis put on the Gothic, which we might touch on some more later. So this cathedral or other buildings like it, their value is in the fact that they that it, it represents what it is for them to be English, for their national identity. And that's all very understandable. You know, nowadays, I think it's probably just our intuition that we want to protect these buildings because they form part of our national identity. But at the same time, what's, what, what's um, intriguing is a, a, te- a desire to build things in the style of medieval buildings. And again, that seems to be uh, because they want to affirm their identity. There is this uh, a trans-historical almost um, identity with the Gothic, and it's it's what what's perhaps odd for us. Though as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of classicism in architecture in the mid twentieth century. But what 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 might be odd for us about this is that whilst the original building seems to be more obviously a foundation for your identity, the one that you're building now seems uh, inauthentic. It's, um, it's like me dressing up as an 18th century uh, gentleman uh, nowadays and trying to, as a, as a way of affirming my Englishness. Uh, how did this, what appears to me to be a tension, work in their minds? Well, I think this is where... As I say, the, the, the subtitle is History in the Age of Romanticism, and this is where Romanticism comes in, which is a very different um, way of engaging with the past and indeed with the present. And one of the most interesting, to me anyway, is not a philosopher, but um, the philosophical aspect of the theory of the picturesque, which comes along now. And to me, it seems that the picturesque theorists were really more realistic than either um, either of their predecessors, particularly Burke, but the idea that your response to an object or to or to scenery or to light or to colour, um, either that it's an entirely subjective thing, it's all up to you. And yet that's clearly not the case because, you know, 
generally people have similar kind of feelings about sunsets and so on. <laughs> or that it's totally within the object. And if you make something shiny and symmetrical, everyone will think it's attractive. Um, and there were lots of arguments about this. But the idea of the picturesque, which is an intensely romantic idea, is that what your experience consists of, and this seems to me simply obvious, really, is a combination of your subjective experience and the objects or the light or the weather or the colour around you. And so when it comes to building a Gothic building or indeed um, dressing up in armour, which quite a lot of people did um, from time to time, um, the idea of what authenticity means is not the same to us. It's either is or isn't, or at least that's what we like to think. I think we're much more sentimental about this. Um, the, for the romantics, if it if the object gave you the right kind of feeling, if it had the right kind of appearance, well, that was authenticity enough. Um, and even if it was historic fabric, but it didn't really look old enough, and this happened, for example, Queen Victoria at Balmoral, they bought an actual um, 17th century tower house and knocked it down and built something that looked much more like a castle mm-hmm. ought to look in Scotland out of granite. So it is about very much, as I say, about what the experience is and a, and a, and a frankness about the fact that it is your experience that's being, um, that is what is, what is, is your engagement with history. Um, and of course, the Englishness of Gothic, it really was an idea that came later. I mean, don't forget, in the, around the time of the French Revolution, of course, the French Revolution didn't do anything for classicism in this country because um, the... French and the Americans, these two um, revolutionary republics, both went for classical architecture. Yeah. Um, so that, of course, up to the Gothic in England. But um, there was great resistance to restoring the cathedrals, which were in very bad shape. And when the Society of Antiquaries did produce engravings of them, there was a lot of opposition within the Society of Antiquaries because these things were said to be popish. They were Catholic. They were pre-Reformation. What do you want to go digging around in all that monkish superstition for? So it's a very mixed feeling up until perhaps the 1830s when they decided to build the Houses of Parliament in the Gothic style. And then it does all become public and national and respectable and imperial and monarchist um, and and British. Yeah, that that was a remarkable bit of the book, actually, because... I've seen the Houses of Parliament a million times, and I never uh, consciously thought, that's a gothic-looking building. And and I never consciously thought that that was built only about 200 years ago. And you make a a big point about the fact that there was a, a, what's it called, like a competition, a public competition about how it should be rebuilt after it burned down. Uh, And the fact that gothic was on the table as one of the proposals was in itself uh, a sign of the change of the times. And, that's, and that is remarkable, given only 40 years ago would have never been there. Or, or maybe yeah. even no one would have considered the Gothic as a public, as a way, to, as a way of building a, a, a public building. A new public building, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was, of course, there had been a huge amount. What's happening now at the Palace of Westminster is a complete rerun of what happened in the 1830s, of course, with... People like Sir John Stone called in to make a survey of the building saying it's in an absolutely terrible state. If you don't move out and rebuild it, then there'll be a terrible fire. And then there was a terrible fire. I'm just watching and waiting now (laughs) to see what happens um, to us. But no, I mean, there were contextual arguments to say that, you know, you've got a building next to Westminster Abbey and Westminster Hall, which had survived the fire. So there was a a sort of logical argument, but the public support for um, a Gothic building. And of course, the designs were exhibited in the National Gallery, which was a new neoclassical building Mm. um, in what was going to be Trafalgar Square. And public opinion, you can read Thackeray on it later on. I mean, it's public opinion had completely swung round to the Gothic for public national buildings. Right. So we've spoken a bit about the way antiquarianism played a part in recreating an English nationalistic narrative. Sort of, the Britons are not descended from Brutus of Troy, but it's this, it's this much more local chain of events connecting the 19th century to medieval England. 
Something similar happens in Scotland, and in an equally remarkable way. And here, the great Walter Scott is at the centre of the story. You mentioned how his book, The Antiquary, does a plays a big role in sort of putting the antiquarians on the imaginative map of people's minds and and almost re redeeming them for people, making them seem much more uh, uh, what's the word? Make giving them a more positive spin. Uh, but what I really want to talk about is the role that he plays in creating this myth, I guess we can call it a myth, a story of uh, Scotland's history and the union with England. And, and I'm thinking about the royal visit of George IV and the whole sort of pageantry that follows. Uh, could you say a bit about that? Well, one of the things that I think is difficult for people to understand now, because Walter Scott one of the very few writers to have an enormous statue. I mean, the statue of him yeah. in Edinburgh is a precursor to the Albert Memorial. It's difficult to get people to believe how incredibly famous he was um, because we don't read his novels so much now. But he was world... Well, it, ha, it has been calculated by people who know how to do such calculations that in the literate world in the Romantic period, something like 95% of people had read Walter Scott. They had read him in English or in French. The, the Russians read him in French. Um, he's very popular in France. And Scott's intelligence, and so one has this view of a sort of very jolly, and he was a very jolly, humorous, warm man, but he was also incredibly intelligent and sophisticated. And he was a romantic and he was a Tory, but he had deep roots in the Scottish Enlightenment. And he thought, as some people still do today, that the best thing for Scotland would be to stay in the Union. But of course, Scotland had been humiliated after the Jacobite rebellions, um, the Highland clearances, the, the banning of wearing Scottish national dress. Well, it wasn't Scottish national dress then. It was, it was the, the tartan. Um, and so it was difficult for him to get... Um, it was difficult to, it, for that argument to prevail and he knew that it was an argument it was a logical, it was an economic argument basically, a political argument but he knew that it was also, as it is again today um, a very emotional argument so because he was good friends with George IV um, this Hanoverian king who opposed, supposedly represented everything that um, the romantic Jacobites had fought against um, and Scott's novels, particularly um, the first one, Waverley, but also, but many of the others too, he, what he was brilliant at as a fiction writer was getting his argument to go one way while all your emotion went the other way. So you could be a passionately keen Bonnie Prince Charlie, Flora MacDonald, um, Bannockburn, all of that. You could have all that, but you could also still be persuaded that the union was the best way forward. And the way that Scott actually brought this about with George IV's visit to Scotland was entirely through artefacts. He staged the rediscovery of the Scottish regalia. Well, the Scottish regalia were discovered dramatically exactly where they'd been left in 1707, just still there in the box. But Scott made a big thing about it. He wrote up the regalia, the crown of Scotland, which symbolised somehow, the, it's a very good bit of tricky writing, where, you know, it's, it's all about bold Scottish independence, but it also means the Union. And then he brought George IV to Scotland. He staged all these events, um, which had no precedent in, in Scottish or English history. Um, he got George IV into one of the biggest kilts ever made, because <laughs> George was by this stage large um, and very sensitive about his figure. And so he, um, there he was in this enormous kilt, which because, he must have put on weight between fittings, because when he put it on, it was even shorter than had been. And one of the slightly flustered ladies who met him at Leith said, well, um, the more we see of your majesty, the better. <laughs> there was a lot of leg showing by that stage. Excellent. Um, but all of the, and the Scottish, the company of Scottish archers, that was, it was actually a gentleman's dining club, but he turned them into archers. And the point about this was that Highland dress, as the name implies, had only really ever been worn by Highlanders. And people who lived in Edinburgh 
regarded it as, you know, the crudest, most uncouth. They didn't like the Highlanders anyway. They were smelly and uncontrollable um, mm-hmm. and ghastly. But Scott managed to make everyone feel that they had a true Highland soul. And in the great dance at the assembly rooms, all this Highland gear, which until relatively recently in historical terms had been illegal, was now compulsory. And as there was a headline in the Times saying, we're all Jacobites now, supporting George IV. And it was a it was an absolute sleight of hand that could only have been done by somebody who understood history, understood ideas, and had worked a lot in the theatre, which yeah. was Scott. Just to uh, continue on this, uh, just, I mean, how successful was Scott uh, in turning the opinions of everyday people? Was there, like, a... Was there a general... Like a, a more than was a a majority change in opinion towards the uh, the union. Yes, there was. I mean, there were good pragmatic reasons for it, and there were plenty of people who didn't want it. Mm-hmm. But no, Scott's popularity. I mean, people were in in France in the Tuileries Gardens. All the ladies were wearing tartan ribbons and tartan shawls, and the whole. And of course, the tartan craze did a lot for the Scottish economy. Mm. So the argument and the economics, to some extent, went together. And then on this great wave of pro-Highland everything, Victoria and Albert went up, bought the bulb. Well, they went to um, Taymouth, where they had its great Highland reception. Then they bought their own land um, at Balmoral. And the idea of the English royal family, as it were, being not only a British royal family, but one with a very particular and deep connection to Scotland, which goes on today. Yes. Um, all began with Walter Scott, who is nowadays in the debates about independence in Scotland. Scott is very much not mentioned. We've gone back to the Braveheart narrative. Right, yes. Which was the one that he was very successful in kind of diverting <laughs> into a loyalist track. And, uh, and two other great... Well, great, mysterious or shadowy figures in this, in the sort of the Scotland narrative of your book are the, the Allen brothers, or as they come to be known, the Sobieski Stewarts, is that correct? Yes. And so they're primarily known for writing a book called the Vestiarum Scotium. Vestiarium Scoticum. I mean, Scoticum. it doesn't matter how you say it, because it's totally made up. Right, it. yeah. But it's, it's some kind of, it's, it's supposed to be a book that they found from the 17th century, and it's on Tartar, and it's trying to... Uh, Make the claim that tartan was always a sort of a Scottish um, dress and it's part of Scottish identity. Uh, long story short, turns out the book was a fraud. <laughs> and Scott kind of knew that. He had a suspicion that it wasn't correct. Uh, but it took a while for them, for people to realise that their book was, for the public to sort of acknowledge that their book was a fraud, right? Well, it wasn't conclusively established. But it was a complete fraud until the 1980s. Wow. But, but part of my point about the, the Allen brothers, I mean, they're great. They've been written about before, though not, I think, quite so much as I've done. Um, because, um, you know, they're part of what Hobson calls the invention of tradition. Well, all traditions are invented in a sense. They don't occur spontaneously in nature. And the point, my point in using the Allen brothers is that because the story that they told was the story people wanted, mm. their legacy lives on. And the fact that, I mean, Walter Scott knew, because the two things that they said were that um, Tartan had been the dress of all of Scotland, not just the Highlands, and also that the individual patterns were associated with individual families. This wasn't true, but this is what I mean to this day it's wildly popular. There are people all over Canada with their own tartans and things, which is fine, but it's not historic. Well, I mean, it, it's another argument that you might like as a, as a philosopher that if enough people believe something for long enough, it becomes true, right? And so, I mean, there are now clan tartans, but they just made all this stuff up. Um, it's very puzzling to me. I'm interested by them as individuals because they did live their whole life pretending to be the um, legitimate grandsons of Bonnie Prince Charlie. They married. They had children. They, they we. What did they say to each other? You just can't. They must have reached a point where they believed it themselves. Anyway, 
So I did go and look through their correspondence. But they, Scott closed them down. And because they were, they were saying they had, it's a very interesting, it's, it's a very frequently recurring antiquarian trope that goes all the way back to the um, Middle Ages and Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was the first person to tell the Arthurian legends. And when asked by Henry of Huntington exactly where he got all this, he said, well, he borrowed a book from Walter the Archdeacon and he can't find it anymore. So, you know, this is something that happens a lot. And the Sobieski Stuarts claimed that they had this manuscript that nobody had seen. And Scott just said, well, okay, but I would like to see it because it seems to me very unlikely. And then they went very, very quiet. And it was only after Scott died and at the precise moment that Queen Victoria was coming to the Highlands, suddenly they burst out with their full-colour volume. And that again is the irony that there they were, Clunk, clanking, they did clank a lot because they wore not only Highland dress but a lot of rather dubious continental medals. So they were <laughs> clanking round Edinburgh, claiming to be the legitimate heirs to the British throne, which seems to have bothered Queen Victoria not in the slightest because she bought the book and thought it was absolutely marvellous um, and immediately started commissioning Victoria and Albert Tartans and, you know, the way we go. Just to tie this in with something we said earlier about authenticity and, and the replication, there's a certain irony in Scott uh, calling out the uh, the Allen brothers uh, of their for- of their of their their lie that they have this book because of course uh, Scott was guilty of uh, some egregious uh, forgeries himself. Uh, I'm thinking of particularly uh, the Ballad of uh, Sir Tristram, where he adds 15 whole stanzas to a poem. If I if I understand correctly, to make it work better, to sort yeah. of make it prettier. Yes. I mean, it was very much... It, it, exactly. I mean, the thing about Scott and Sobieski Stuarts is that his um, objections to them... And he didn't... He wrote a long letter um, to the friend who was promoting, trying to promote this book and get it published. And he says, you these enthusiastic young men, he's not nasty about them. I think there must have been a bit of him that thought, well, two of the characters had got out of his book and were (laughs) moving around autonomously now, and it was a bit scary. But that that shows you, I think, what he was and was not prepared to tolerate. And it wasn't just because it was them doing it and not him. I think he felt that to elaborate a poem, after all, it was a poem that was becoming another poem, um, and people did this... In, in France and with Gothic buildings and so on, you know, elaborating works of art, that that was somehow to continue the same thing, but actually to forge material with intent to deceive. We all might draw that line in different places. And Scott's attitude to the Sobieski Stuarts shows you where he drew it. Yeah. I was wondering, because you mentioned... Um that whilst you, were reading, whilst you were reading their correspondence, you, you sort of had to ask yourself, well, how do these people live? And that they must have believed the lie eventually. And I was asking myself precisely that question, especially in the, uh, the code of your book, where you talk about, uh, where you show John Campbell's um, attempt to try and distance himself from them, but at the same time to remain respectful of what they've done for Scotland. And in one of their letters to him, they they assure him that what they're doing is honest, um, and I was I was taking the view that well they must know what they've done they they're aware of what they're doing, and maybe they thought this was perfectly acceptable within this environment um, that oh you know he's adding a few stanzas you know they're just building these gothic cathedrals why can't we just say that uh, we found this book and because it's it's not about the evidence per se, but it's about, as we've been saying, it's about the story. It's about the the narrative that you want to uh, support and put forward. Yes, I think you're probably giving them too much, giving them the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) There's a hell of a lot of doubt, so um, perhaps they could have some of the benefit. Um, No, I think, because the letters um, of Campbell of Isla, who had known them when he was a little boy, and he grew up, as a Victorian antiquary and was very interested in oral history, which is another thing we haven't mentioned, but the antiquaries really begin oral history. Right. They take old people seriously and sit them down and listen to them going on, like I'm going on to you. Right, right, um, right. <laughs> so, um, Campbell of Isla 
is trying to work out what's the truth and asking the Sobieski Stuarts in older age um, what they you know what they thought they were doing really and there's a lot of wriggling and wiggling but in their other correspondence um with William Chambers the um publisher and who took them very seriously indeed and wanted them to appear at a commemoration of the centenary of Culloden and there's a very Weasley letter they wrote about not doing that because it, you know, it might really stir things up. You know, pe- there are people who do know who we are. Well, actually, by this stage, they really had to keep their heads down. I think what is most interesting psychologically about them is how they got into this, because it was almost certainly Watson. I can't remember his first name. Um, who's one of the most? A lot of the antiquaries, for various reasons, they were accused of. Um, being um, seditious, and of course, if they were Catholics, they were in a lot of trouble anyway. But the only person in my book, Robert Watson, Robert Watson, um, who really was any of those things, who was um, a, an unusual but not an unheard of combination of a Jacobin and a Jacobite. He was a revolutionary. He was a spy, um, and he was a really very dangerous figure. And he was certainly associated, he picked up, as it were, the Sobieski Stuarts when he was in later middle age and they would have been very young. And he certainly had some real relics of um, the young pretender. And he seems to have kind of, he was obviously very charismatic as well. Um, And he seems to have sort of coaxed them and coached them. And you can begin, insofar as I can ever enter into their minds, to see how one thing might lead to another. Mm. And then, of course, because they did, they were very good looking. Um, they dressed up like, um, the, like the Stuarts. <laughs> they, no one, you know, they were in the outer islands, Scottish islands. Nobody had seen any of these people. There was no photography or anything. And you see these two incredibly good looking, charming young men dressed to the nines and clanking, as I say, with medals and sporrans and stuff. Um, and people all rallied round. And for a period of time, they were really, they, as one of the um, people who met them says, they reigned in the Highlands. And of course, by that stage, it would have been very difficult. Watson, who committed suicide in his 80s in a very sensational case, which Dickens took up later on, Watson had been involved with the Gordon riots. He was, as I say, a very dangerous um incendiary figure but he was long gone by then so they were just and they married women who obviously believed they were who they said they were um so they must have just got to a point where it was impossible to go back yes very good con men maybe yeah well i think all the best con men believe what they say Mm. and if you wanted a category for them i think you'd have to say it was kind of performance antiquarianism (laughs) good yeah um and so we spoke about England, we spoke about France, uh, uh, Scotland. France is also an important uh, part of your book. Normandy, but also Paris. And you briefly spoke about the fact that all the sort of cultural property of France was nationalised over time, overnight in uh, 89. And what you have is a kind of tourism, essentially, of uh, French churches of any building which might contain some relic of the past. And then, of course, the most amazing piece of tourism, the Battle of Waterloo, which is remarkable, uh, that people would think to go there to find... And it shows that their concern is not just with the past, but they they have this overwhelming desire to preserve anything that has just passed. Um, a A few weeks after the Battle of Waterloo, and what was there was worthwhile preserving. The French react differently to uh, the preservation of a lot of these objects uh, to how the English do. So the English sort of come, they sort of buy everything up (laughs) and take it back to England as they want to do and sort of keep it in private collections because the sort of national museums are not keen on having them yet. But then uh, in France, if I remember correctly, uh, they're much quicker at... Uh, setting up a museum for all these objects and it becomes much more of a uh, a concern Uh, it's 
it's quickly understood that it's about their cultural heritage in a way that it isn't understood in England for a while. I think that, I mean, the French were very aware that in one sense they were behind the English. The thing is that the English, the shocks of the Reformation and the Civil Wars were in the past. They were outside of living memory. And so people had had a chance to assimilate, try and understand, um, and were beginning indeed to look. I mean, it was took them a long time to start looking at the ruins of monasteries and thinking that there was something interesting here and that it was part of what... Was it? I mean, the whole idea of heritage, the idea of um, identity with historic remains was, was still relatively new in England mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, overall time. And, of course, for the French, there was this great blast, this great shock in 1789, followed by, in the terror, um, real culture wars. Any object which... They'd abolished the monarchy, they'd abolished Christianity, anything, any object, any artefact that bore the symbols of monarchy or Christianity was to be destroyed. And it was a very dangerous thing indeed to try and stop these people. Um, On the, I think it's the second anniversary of the um, execution of Louis XVI, they went into Saint-Denis, which is like Westminster Abbey in England, where all the royal tombs were, and started smashing up the tombs, not just smashing up the tombs, but digging up the bodies mm. and throwing them into a ditch. And Alexandre Lenoir, who was a French antiquary, was an artist, but very rapidly became an antiquary, um, went in and physically stood in front of some of the tombs and managed to preserve them. And what is interesting about what Lenoir did, he took them to one of the many deserted convents of the Petit Augustin, which is opposite the Louvre, and he stored all these objects there. And it is something that we think about now. How do you show contentious works of art? How do you recontextualize? And he saved these objects by recontextualizing them. He said, this is not an exhibition about monarchy. This is not an exhibition about Christianity. This is a story of the history of France told through objects. There's never been a museum like that before anywhere. So, of course, um, once he'd managed to... He lost a finger fighting in Saint-Denis. Yeah. You know, this was really dangerous stuff. And the man who tried to preserve the bishop's throne in Rouen was guillotined um, because, you know, it, it was not... It was an unacceptable object. Um, so people had to be quite brave. But once things calmed down, once Napoleon got control, of course, Napoleon was not in favour of cultural vandalism at all, um, things got slightly easier from that point of view. And also, of course, as Napoleon's army exported the revolution all over Europe, as they saw it, exporting the revolution. But anyway, they signed treaties which were you know, pretty much at gunpoint. They were collecting, looting, depending which side you were on, lots of works of art. And so those were all being brought back to the Louvre. And at that point, there was still no National Gallery in England. There was no public collection of this sort. And so there's a big debate going on, particularly among antiquaries, about who can own objects? Who do they really belong to? And even if you come to Paris and you reclaim, there's a wonderful eyewitness accounts of the dismantling of the Louvre. But were these things really going to go back to all those little churches in Italy? No, they weren't. They were going to go into the Vatican. Um, the, the pictures that were going to England were all being created up for the Duke of Wellington and the King. So, you know, wasn't it time that, that, that in Britain too we had a more pub- Wouldn't it be better to have just stopped the Louvre as it was and said this is now a public art gallery and all of this belongs to the public, anyone can come and see it. So those very big discussions, which, say, go on today, yeah. um, begin there. Yeah, it was fascinating to read these very similar concerns. So there's, a, I can't remember the name of the antiquary, a British one, who was either in Lenoir's museum or the Louvre, and he was reflecting on the, on the one hand, well, it's wonderful that all these works of art are in one place so that we can see the great sweep of history before us. But on the other hand, he clearly could sympathise with the 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 loss that mm. the the local places that lost these works of art would have felt the way you know the way they would have felt the loss you know when Salisbury Cathedral was sort of whitewashed. 
so it was very interesting to see this 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 concern very much at the at the front of their mind. But it seems that ultimately that they, they want to fall on the side of public ownership of it's best to have them in this public space where everyone can enjoy them rather than to have them um, scattered around the country, right? And then you have, and then uh, when is it that the British Museum eventually decides to have sort of a national section? Well, yeah, no British, no British antiquities in the British Museum until the eighteen fifties. Eighteen fifties, right? Yeah. Okay, so eighteen fifty one is sort of the end date mm. when we have the Great Exhibition. What is it about this time that signals the decline of antiquarianism? Well, I think the decline of antiquarianism is perhaps putting it too strongly. It's the end of a particular phase, and in some ways the antiquaries were just the victims of their own success, because these objects were now being taken seriously um, and being put into collections, and the the legacy of the Great Exhibition was um, the museum that became, it's now a Victoria and Albert Museum. So there was going to be... Um, um, a, a collection of um, of artefacts, non-classical artefacts, and all sorts of institutions. Archaeology was becoming a distinct profession, and history was becoming a distinct subject in universities. But in a way, um, that sort of hardening of lines froze out the antiquaries, because the great thing, I think, about the antiquaries is that they were very free-range. They moved across what were not then um, kind of subject divisions. There were no disciplinary divisions. And they they mostly worked outside institutions and therefore they were very able to be very spontaneous and intellectually quite nimble. And of course they did make some terrible mistakes, but then so did the academics who came after them. And also history went back to being much more concerned. It became... Well, I mean, I don't know about me saying this, but... um, John Brewer says this, um, that it became very male. He says there was a whiff of pipe smoke about it well into the 20th century. And so it was all, we went back to being all about wars and economics and politicians and kings and queens. Um, and that sense of a history of a common um, national life and experience, an international life and experience, um, was, was kind of pushed aside again. I think it's beginning to revive now, and I'm glad of that. Yeah, yeah, there are so many books on the uh, the social attitudes of people in the 16th century, or yes. um, very niche uh, local histories. Um, this might be um, too speculative a question, but why do you think it is that people went back to this form of history? I think, well, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, you have a sort of tick-tock swing between the Apollonian and the Dionysian, and you'd had um, the Romantic Age was well and truly over. Yeah. Um, one doesn't want to be too hard on the Victorians. And, but they were more... One of the reasons that things like Tartan were so successful is that what the Victorians wanted, especially, I mean, not the early Victorians, but from the mid-1850s onwards, you've got what you can call the high Victorian years, and what they liked was something which was personal, particularly if it was family related, but which was also codified and organised, um, mm. like a railway timetable. And so, the bringing the official um, use of um, history within museums, within universities. Well, of course, once you do that, who's allowed to teach in a university? Who's allowed to run a museum? Men, obviously, and there were, I mean, I haven't managed to find very many women among the antiquaries, but they are there, they're in the background, beavering away, and they can they can do stuff, which they couldn't in the universities or the museums, and you tend to have to be, have a certain level of education, and so on, whereas the, the antiquaries, and it's, this is still true of many local historians, they just start with their local parish church, or they dig up something in a field near their house, and you, you just do it yourself. Hmm. But it became, once it becomes professionalised, it becomes exclusive. Yeah. And now we're very much in this world of archaeologists, military historians, other kind of, everyone's doing their own uh, field. Um, just to sort of try and uh, wrap things up with this, this new age of academic disciplines, a point that you made, which I think is a very interesting point, that despite our desire to move away from the romantic antiquarian that we're still very much 
to the point that it, it perhaps seems natural to us, we're still very much guilty of perhaps, or guilty, guilty might be the wrong word, but we're very much inclined to uh, create a story. You're still, you still want to fill in the gaps. You still want to say something about it that is more than just, you know, there is a skeleton of a man and a woman and it looks like they were killed. You want to say more about it. Well, archaeologists are the worst, I mean, from that point of view, um, much as I respect most archaeologists. But no, the thing is that I understand, I mean, what archaeology can tell you is what, and increasingly it can tell you when, um, because um, the work that's been done on probability theory, um, mm. but why is remains very difficult if you have a society or you, you have remains that don't include writing or pictograms or anything. And sometimes you just have to resign yourself to the fact that you don't know. Um, and ritual purposes is a very wide umbrella that seems to cover almost anything. Yeah. Um, and Stonehenge, of course, is the sort of classic site for all this kind of carry-on. But no, we do... I think it's, it is very sentimental to think that we don't want narrative. And a school of history that resists um, narrative is just, um, it, it's hopeless. We are, as human animals, we live in time. We understand our experience through the passage of time, and therefore we construct narratives, because that's how we experience the world. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay, one final question. Uh, what are you currently working on? What, uh, what, what, what are your current research interests? Well, um, all the same interests as before. What I'm actually doing at the moment, which is a very antiquarian thing to do, is which is just for a short article, is I'm investigating the Eltham Hutments. Okay, what is that? Were, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the 1921 census went online this year, and um, I thought, what shall I look for? What shall I look for? I just wanted to get in amongst it, so I thought I'd look for my father. And, because um, I knew he was a few months old then. And I found him living in... Mars Avenue, unusual name, in the Eltham Hutlands. And I had no idea about this stage of his life, but he was living there with his great-grandmother, who was born in 1840 in Rochester, who was illiterate, but who had once seen Charles Dickens. His grandfather, who was working at Woolwich Arsenal, which is how they got the Hutland, making war medals. Mm. His parents... Um, both of whom had had very traumatic times in the war. His elder half-sister, my father's elder half-sister, was already dead from diphtheria. And there they all were in the Hutlands, which I didn't know anything about, which were built just after the First World War, demolished just before the Second World War. So I thought, as a little kind of thrown-together community of an extended family, all battered one way or another by the First World War, it'd be quite interesting just to write them up and to write the Hutlands up with them. That's fantastic. You're a modern-day antiquarian. What? You are like, you are a modern-day antiquarian. I am. Well, yes, I am an antiquarian. And there's there's lots of us about. Just yeah. just keep your eyes open. <laughs> well, Rosemary, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure to interview you, and your book was a pleasure to read. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Hello again, and now we're going to discuss a bit about the interview with Julia. Yeah, to begin with, thank you very much. That was uh, hugely pleasant, and um, I don't know if I can say this, but she sounds also like a lovely person. <laughs> she was, yeah. She was fantastic. Um, Julia, you need to earn your keep here. <laughs> <laughs> for, for the brave ones who are still with us. Yeah. Share with me one thought that the interview provoked. So something that I found... Um, surely thought-provoking is the this idea that history or antiquarianism or both, maybe we can talk about this later, but in any case, that there's an element of um, um, construction in the subject. And not only that, but also that it's a, a sort of a selective construction, because not only we um, make up history, but we make up the history we need mm. in the present. Yeah, I think you're right. It definitely grates against a more popular understanding of history as a retelling of facts. Maybe one way we could frame this is as an opposition between objectivity and myth-making. 
we normally think of history as just a brute retelling of what happened without any external additions, without any creativity. And Rosemary's book is telling us that that's not the case, that narrative is fundamental to how we do history. Well, you mentioned objectivity, though, I don't... I'm not sure what you just said bears on issues about objectivity necessarily. Or rather, I don't know, maybe it's not the kind of objectivity we thought that history would bring us, but it, there's still an element of objectivity. Or, I don't know, is there? Because, for instance, when, when, you t- when you talk about Walter Scott and his uh, modifying uh, that poem, I thought, oh gosh, definitely then... Um, something about objectivity, something objective gets gets lost. But on the other hand, it is still a fact for us that he did that. I don't know, what do you think about that? Yeah, definitely it's true that it becomes a part of history itself, and then it becomes interesting in and of itself for that reason, that there was a time when someone thought that it was perfectly legitimate to add to a poem. I think there's obviously a distinction between the poem as something that was originally written in whichever time period and Mm -hmm. our relationship to it as trying to understand something of this time period through the poem and Scott's additions. I mean, if someone came to that poem completely unaware of the additions made by Scott, they they would be misled, right? I mean, the the portions added in by Scott would not be properly representative of the sort of the time of the first half of the poem. Yeah, definitely. Even, even though I think maybe there are different kinds of deception and different kinds of ways in which someone might be misled. I don't know, I'm thinking, for example, about the case of Walter Scott compared to the case of, um, how are they called? The Sobieski Stuarts. I can never pronounce that. Who seem to be deceiving willingly and wittingly. And perhaps there's a distinction between these two kinds of cases. I mean, of course there is. I'm not sure whether it is a distinction that matters for our purposes. Like, do you think that the two kind of cases in which someone uh, is doing it basically in good faith or in bad faith have a, a different sort of impact on historical value? I think it feels like it should matter, right? I mean, maybe before when we were talking about objectivity, you know, we, I was presenting a very rigid and maybe typical notion of objectivity. Maybe what's remarkable about antiquaries is they have a more nuanced notion of objectivity. And you might think that Walter Scott's ambitions in adding those few lines, those stanzas to the poem, are authentic in the sense that he thinks that he's genuinely invoking the spirit of the poem and trying to improve upon it. Whereas you might be more skeptical about the intentions of the Sobieski Stuarts. Exactly. But does what they do give us anything historically interesting over and above the fact that they were naughty boys. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I wonder. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. I would tend to, to think that, of course, knowing what they've done um, is um, interesting for us as everything can be interesting. But in their, in, in their case, it doesn't return anything of the spirit of the time, mm. but maybe just of human nature. <laughs> What they do is not essential of their time as what Scott did is. So, I mean, I do think the different intentions that were just outlined do matter. However, I wonder whether what they do is symptomatic of the general romantic antiquarian mm. approach to history. And they just took it uh, in a more extreme direction than but Scott. In, in what sense? In the sense of, let's actually just think of history as this creative act that serves our needs. And let's not think of history as a reservoir of mm. facts that we need to preserve or that we need to accurately represent. And then what they did, which basically is sort of creating this mythology of Tartan and where in Scotland, oh, which, should have said this before. which right, yeah, which lasts to this day, right? So, so they, so they pretend. We talk about this interview, but they pretend to have found this old book. I'm not going to try to pronounce it again. Which sort of claims that different patterns of tartan were used throughout Scotland's history to designate different clans, and so they, they create this huge taxonomy of tartan, which inspires people to this very day. This is false. This never happened. But Scotland needed something to bolster its identity, its national identity, in a time of union, in a time of, you know, not Scottish independence, but Scotland as part of the Great Britain. The Sobieski Stuarts provided a historical myth about Scottish identity that allowed Scots to represent themselves or to be unique in a certain way. Okay, and am I right uh, in thinking that this romantic spirit is what is essentially distinctive of antiquarianism itself? Because now, after all this speaking about antiquarianism in history, 
I feel like I'm getting confused. Like, okay, wait, I thought I knew the distinction before all of this, and now I may have lost it. So I'm not sure if historians couldn't be romantics, and if antiquarians... But in the interview, it does come up, and in the book, of course, that antiquarians did have this sort of romantic spirit. I think the main distinction between them is that historians, before the rise of the antiquaries from 1789, because antiquaries existed even before, from the 16th century, the main difference is that historians really focused on great events and great individuals, because mm-hmm. histor- history was fundament- fundamentally pedagogical. Mm-hmm. What the antiquaries do is that they concern themselves with more local history, with history that is not necessarily considered significant, so they don't just talk about antiquity, but they talk about medieval England. And... So, so maybe that's why we get to know about the brothers. <laughs> How are they called? The Sobieski students. Ah, my God. And about what they did through the lens of antiquarianism rather than history. Because if antiquarianism hadn't been big at the time, they would have not maybe had the trust to invent a book written by unknown people, basically. One wonders whether they would have even had the thought of doing such a thing in the first place. So, if this is all right, then it does seem that antiquarianism really played an important role, because it taught us that also tiny deeds and uh, the layman could matter. That's definitely the legacy of antiquarianism, alongside other things that we discussed in the conclusion of, of, the, of the interview. Even though now I wonder how are things now, or how are things after 1852, do you think it's fair to say that history too took on the legacy and started to look at less than heroes. I think it did. I mean, if you just think about, just off the top of my head, in the last sort of 50 or 60 years, you get books like Keith Thomas's Religion and the Decline of Magic, Popular Beliefs mm-hmm. in England and Wales. You've got... Dominic Sandbrook. Dominic Sandbrook's, yeah, series on modern England in the mid-20th century, where, yeah, he spends a lot of ink talking about what normal people thought. And, that, and that's actually a historiographical commitment, things that you get a more accurate notion of what went on if you mm-hmm. look at what the average person thought than what certain intellectual groups or what. Yeah. I mean, definitely you capture the spirit of the time more accurately. But also with the fall of antiquarianism, what you also have is a, a specialization. So antiquarians were playwrights, archaeologists, historians, they, were, they did everything. With their decline, all that they offered to history remains but it stops being under antiquarianism and becomes schools. Mm-hmm. So you've got archaeologists, you've got geologists, you've got, I don't know, people who specialize in clothing and people who specialize in weapons. Mm-hmm. And Whereas antiquary would do all of these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is this is pretty much how I think all of academic thought has gone. So <laughs> yeah, I, was, I didn't want to say, but I was like, yeah, old, old story for philosophy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Our poor baby that was ripped off of half of its content. <laughs> yeah. I don't want Wow, this was real fun. Yeah, that was a fantastic conversation. Thank and, you. And uh, thank you very much for introducing me to the magic of antiquarianism. It is magical, and you would never think it. Uh, I'd like to thank Rosemary here as well. Yeah, yeah she was For fantastic. the same reason. So, that's all for today. Make sure to join me next week, where I'll be interviewing John Gasvinian on his book, America and Iran, what promises to be a really thrilling historical account of the different ways that these two great nations have loved and hated each other, and how we are where we are right now. So, Julia, once again, thank you very much. Thank you, Aki. And uh, bye-bye.